This is John chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed. He took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Great to see you here today. Thank you for coming to our 11 o'clock service and worshiping with us. Um, I want to start out this way. If we go back 38 years, it will take us to 1983. And I, those of you who were around in 1983, just want you to get your brains circling a little bit. And I want to ask this question, what has been lame since 1983? What's been lame for 38 years? I I came up with a few things. Here's one. This is called Betamax. Anybody? Oh, you nobody. Yeah, there are some that did not escape the Betamax thing. Uh, uh, Everybody stocked up on Betamaxes thinking it was going to be the next thing, and, and it wasn't. It wasn't, right? I feel like growing up in Fort Scott was kind of a shelter for this because by the time technology arrived here, we had weeded out all the bad stuff. Here's something else. New Coke. Anybody remember New Coke? 1983? Lame for 38 years. Uh, Here's one. Fax machine. We still use these things, right? Lame the whole time. Okay. Um, Remember this. Anybody? Yeah. (laughs) I got some uh, Oregon Trail fans out there. And um, if you, you may have played this game, but you never won because everybody died of dysentery. Is that right? That's how that went. Okay. Here's the next one. Remember that? Oh, man. We had somebody in the first service say, I still have that on my wall. <laughs> if it works, okay. And, and more than anything, the color is just beautiful, right? And I had, I had a lady in one of the earlier services say, oh, that, that's not, you know, disgusting yellow, that's harvest gold, right? Yeah, okay, well, whatever color it is, it's kind of lame. All right, Uh, and here, carrying what, who shot JR? Lame since 1983, let me give you one more. It is wearing sweaters around your neck with no intention of ever wearing the sweater. Yeah, tying sweaters around your neck. Lame since 1983. Um, We are in the middle of a sign series, and we're calling it that because we are moving through the book of John, the Gospel of John, and we're looking at all of the signs that he assembled to point us somewhere. A sign does something. It, It points to something beyond it. That's what a sign is designed to do. And all of the miracles that John includes in his Gospel, he calls signs. In other words... They are designed, I have put them there, so that they point to something else. At the very end of the book uh, of the Gospel of John, he will say that I've, I've written all of these things so that you may believe who Jesus is and that you may have life in his name. He says, if all of the things would have been written that I could have written about Jesus, I would not have room to fill all of the books. But these have been written so that you may know who Jesus is and have life in his name. And so 
these, uh, John, out of all of the miracles that Jesus ever did, uh, he picks about eight of them and says, these miracles show us who Jesus is, why he came. Um, and the first week, we learned that Jesus has come to bring us joy. He's God in the flesh, come to bring us joy. Last week, we talked about uh, Jesus coming to give us life from death. He is God in the flesh, come to give us life. And today, we have a story about a, a guy who has been lame at a pool for 38 years, and it tells us something about Jesus. I want to cover uh, three things today. I want, to, I want to talk about the superstitious that are waiting. I want to talk about the sinner that is walking, and I want to talk about the Savior that is working. Um, let's start in verse 1 of chapter 5. Here's what John writes. He says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and the Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool. In Aramaic, it's called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades, and in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. I want to take just a sidetrack, just right off the bat, and talk about this description that John gives us. He, he tells us that there's a pool, and it's by the Sheep Gate. That would have been a gate in the wall around the city of Jerusalem, and the Sheep Gate uh, led into the temple, so it was, and it was named the Sheep Gate, so presumably it was where the sheep would have been funneled that would have been ultimately the sacrifices in the temple. And by that gate, there was a pool, and it had five roofed colonnades. Uh, we could call them porches, for lack of a better term, uh, columns with a roof on top to kind of uh, shade the people. And for a long time, the reason this is an interesting side trail is uh, when people decided to decide to, de to determine whether the Bible was historically accurate or not, they, they pointed at this, this text in John. And they said, oh, no, 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 wait a minute, we, we can't rely on the Scripture to be historically accurate because of this pool. Nobody's ever heard about this pool. There's no knowledge of it. There's no evidence for it. And it says, John says, there's five porches on the pool, that's, that's like a five-sided pool. Like nobody's ever heard of a pentagon-shaped pool. And so this is evidence that Scripture is not reliable. And so whoever wrote this, surely it's not John the Apostle he, because he was an eyewitness. Whoever wrote this, it had to be somebody who was divorced from the situation maybe centuries later that didn't know anything about Jerusalem's architecture because there was no pool like John Wright. Well, the early 20th century, somebody was demolishing a church that had been built, and they realized that that church had been built over some ruins, and what did they find underneath this church that had been built over ruins? They found a pool. They didn't find just one pool, they found actually two pools. Here's a picture of the ruins of the pool of Bethesda, and uh, here's another picture of an artist's rendering of what it would have looked like. There's the sheep gate uh, and the wall, and the artist's rendering of two pools with a little ridge that divided the pools. And if you count up all of the, porched, all of the porches on each side, you come up with four sides plus one in the middle. And how, much, how many does that make? Five. Five. And so here's the deal. The irony is this pool was probably destroyed in 70 AD when the Romans attacked Jerusalem. And so after that, 
Nobody knew that there was a pool, and that means that the person who wrote this story down was an actual eyewitness of the pool that did exist when he wrote prior to 70 AD. And so anyone who lived very long after Jesus would never have known about the pool, but John walked with Jesus. He knew about the pool, and so what was a strong argument to distrust the historicity of the Bible all of a sudden becomes the strongest argument for the historic reliability of Scripture because the author of this book had to have been a contemporary or very close of Jesus. And why, why are we spending time on this right out of the gate? It's just, just this little reminder that when we come to Scripture, we can trust that what we are reading is true. And that matters. Because Christianity is such a radical departure from other religious systems that we have to be able to trust that the people who are telling us about Christianity, about Jesus, are telling us the truth. And here's a little evidence to say, yes, they are telling us the truth. If they tell us the truth about the little things, then we can, we can trust them to tell us the truth about the big thing. And this pool that really existed, under porches that really existed, John writes that there were people that would come and they would lay underneath these porches out of the sun and it was uh, multitudes of people who were blind, lame, paralyzed and they were all around, around this pool in hopes of being healed. And so what I need you in your mind to do is slam a hospital together with whitewater, just join those two things. And that's what we have here. There are all these people around the pool in hopes of being healed. Now, why were we there? Verse 4 really helps us a lot. And if you look at verse 4 in your Bible, you will, dis you will discover that verse 4 isn't there. <laughs> verse, there's no verse 4. Uh, it's because it's in the footnotes. And it's because... Verse 4 doesn't pop up in manuscripts until about the 6th century. It's way late. And clearly what happened is about the 6th century, some scribe who is writing, scribe, you know, transcribing the book of John decided, you know, people need an explanation as to why these people are around this pool. And so he wrote verse 4. It goes like this. They were waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water, and whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Now, the scribe, this is very important, is not telling us what happened. He's telling us about the superstition that had grown up around this pool. Something besides the wind had caused the waters to stir in the pool, and legend grew that the disturbances were caused by, by angels. There are all kinds of supernatural things that were associated with water and that they had healing power, these disturbances. And so you can track how that might have gone. It's much like, you know, somebody seeing uh, uh, an image of Mary in their toast, and all of a sudden their knee's better. <laughs> and so all of a sudden, uh, people from around the world are, are coming, camping out outside their house, hoping to be healed by the picture of Mary in the toast, right? And that's how this went. Some guy is in the pool with a headache, and the water begins to stir, and he notices his headache is gone, and he attributes that to the water, and then he starts telling his friends, and soon everyone is coming to the pool to be healed, and it's superstition, right? 
And we read this kind of thing and we think, oh, wow, those poor people. I'm so glad that we're past superstition, right? I'm so glad that never happens anymore. I mean, I am so glad that we don't wear the same jersey for 10 weeks in a row trying to get a Super Bowl victory, right? They were children of their time, doing what they did, just like we are children of our time, doing what we do. And this picture would be funny if it weren't tragic. Because here's, here's the reality. The horrible truth is that this scene is a look at the only hospital that is available at the time. This is it. If you're in trouble, if you're sick or blind or lame or invalid in some way, this is your primary care physician. To go to the pool, hope the water moves, and to go down into the water. And so is everyone else's. That's the hope. And that's dreadful. I mean, imagine all of these people lying around in pain and despair and disease, and the lucky ones maybe have somebody with them to help them to, to get into the pool when the water moves. And there's, when the water moves, there's this hope, you know, that overtakes everybody around the pool, and this mass of humanity moves towards the water, this broken mass of humanity, everybody hoping that the doctor is in. And what a corrupt system that is. I want you to think about it just for two seconds. And you'll, you'll agree with this. That in that system, it's the most able that would have been the most likely to be healed. If I can get to the water first, I'll be healed. That was the thought. It favored the healthiest people because they get to the water the fastest. The ones in the most need are the ones least likely to be healed. That reminds me of something. That sounds like religion to me. Religion is where you make your own way to God, and only if you're able to pull yourself up and make yourself into a moral person will God smile on you. And In religion, only the most capable, only the strongest earn God's approval. And so the people who need God the most are the people who are the least likely to find him. That's religion. And into this religious hospital filled with infirmed and superstitious people system walks somebody who will bust up that system. Jesus walks into the crowd, and true to form, he focuses on the worst cases. And he spots a guy that we are told has been an invalid for 38 years. Invalid just means that he's been disabled in some way and he's unable to walk. We don't really have details about his injury, but he's at the pool in hopes of being healed. And let's face it, his prospects of reaching the water before somebody else can get there are not good. Like the doctor is never in for him. He's in an incurable situation and it's been 38 years so far that he's been this way. And that's really where we all are. If in purely religious terms, we, we know that in order to please God, 
We need to keep his law, but we also know that there's very little real possibility of doing that successfully. So we, we try to measure up, we try to make it to the water, but no matter what, the religious system that we're in keeps on reminding us that we're just lame, that we will never make it to the water. We need the religious system to heal us, but it cannot do what it was never designed to do. The law gives us in our hearts, that God gives us in our hearts, can only tell us we're broken. It can never fix us, and that's what we need. And more than anything else, the water in this guy's life just reaffirmed that he was just broken and sick and in need and it would never change. But Jesus steps into that system to change things. Here's verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to them, do you want to be healed. And the sick man answered, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. I want you to note right away that Jesus goes to this man. This man doesn't go searching for Jesus. Jesus searches for him. Finding God when Jesus is around is no longer about beating everybody else to the water. It's about God reaching out to us. That's what Jesus has come to do, to come and camp out among us in the flesh. And right on cue, the God in flesh comes to this man and asks him a hard question. Now, this is becoming a pattern, is it not? In the very first week, the hard question was Jesus to his mother, and he said, woman, what has this to do with me? In the second week, last week, Jesus is talking to an official who wants his son to be healed. Jesus, would you heal my son? And he says to this man, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. And now here, this this time, this third week, to a man who's been lame for 38 years, who is at the only hospital that he knows of, he's hanging out there in hopes of being healed. Jesus walks up and says, do you want to be healed? And we read that and we think, did Jesus really just ask that? Like, how obvious can it be? I've, I've gone to a lot of hospital rooms over, the, over the, my ministry time. And never once in any hospital room have I ever had to ask this question. I've never witnessed anybody else coming into a hospital room and asking this question, do you want to be healed? Let's assume that they do. But because Jesus asks the question, let's just assume that he knows something about this guy that we don't. And so maybe, maybe it's an intervention. Maybe he's waking this man up to reality. Whatever it is, he asks the question, and the man doesn't give much of a response. He quickly goes into making excuses, and they're pretty legitimate excuses, actually. This man doesn't have much knowledge of Jesus. Uh, The text never says that he believes in Jesus. Never says that he has faith. He just goes to this excuse. "I, I have no one to put me in the water. In other words, I have no one to help me. I want to be healed, but I acknowledge that I don't have any power in myself to do it. I need outside help. And man, I would love your help getting down into the water. If I had your help, Jesus, 
maybe I could get to the water in time. And do you see what's happening? This man is still glued on the water as his healing. When Jesus, the healer, is standing right in front of you. Jesus isn't the one who just helps us toward salvation. Jesus is salvation. That's a very subtle difference. But again, it's, it's huge. It's the difference, once again, between religion and what Jesus is offering to us. Religion sees Jesus as someone who can help get us what we're really after. Jesus, help me get to the water so my life can get back on track. And we probably all started out that way when we came to Jesus. Jesus, addiction has made my life a wreck. Jesus, my marriage didn't go the way I thought it would go. Jesus, I have raised my kids and now they've left my house and they hate me. They will not come back. Jesus, I've been out of work for months and we see Jesus as a source to get back the things that we lost. Jesus, I need your help. Help me get back to the water. Help me fix my life. Make my marriage good, good again. Restore my kids to me. Land me the job. And what are we saying when we say those things? We're saying this, if I have those things fixed in my life, then I would be saved. Jesus, my real salvation is in my sobriety, it's in my marriage, it's in my kids, it's in my job. So Jesus, I would love your help to be able to get those things back that I lost. And we use Jesus as a means to an end. And that's what this guy's doing. Jesus, I would be real happy to have you partner with me so that I can get my legs back. Jesus isn't offering today just to be your help. Jesus is offering to be your healer. That's the good news of Christianity. Christianity says Jesus just isn't an assistant to help you down into the water. Jesus is the water. Jesus is salvation. Healing and salvation are never in the pool. They're in Jesus. Don't use Jesus to get the things that you think will save you. See your salvation in him. Having said all of that, I need to explain this, that in Jesus, I absolutely believe that your marriage can be healed. I do. But listen, if your marriage never heals, Jesus is still your salvation, not your marriage. I believe that in Jesus, you can restore relationships, that your kids can come back. But if they never do, Jesus is still your salvation. In Jesus, I believe that you can kick that sin out of your life, that addiction that you're struggling with. But if that never happens, your salvation is still in Jesus. In Jesus, I believe that you can have whatever career that you want to have. But if that never happens, Jesus is still your salvation. Jesus says, I'm not here to help you get back in the water so you can be healed. I'm here as the healer to heal you. And to this man, the healer, he doesn't help him back into the water. He just says, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once he stood up, he was healed. And he took up his bed, his mat, and he walked off. The royals won't pull one off today, a walk-off. 
probably. And even if they do, this will be the best walk-off you see today. Uh, and, and as he walks off, realize what's going on. Jesus is doing what the pool stood for, but could never do successfully. The pool was all about healing. And Jesus brought the true healing. So many things in our lives promise things that they will never be able to deliver. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, what water am I chasing after? What ripple am I chasing after when the living water is standing right in front of me? The text says, now that day was the Sabbath. Verse 10, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. There's really two stories in the text. One story is about a man who is healed. The other story is about the reaction to the man that was healed. And it's the Sabbath. That's what I need you to circle in your mind, and we'll come back to that because it causes immediate controversy. Verse 14 reads this way, afterward, Jesus found this man in the temple and said to him, see you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. To his credit, after he had been healed, this man went to the temple. Uh, He went to church, right? But Jesus, because of what he says, is not too confident that this man will turn things around. And He says this very cryptic phrase, stop sinning or something worse may happen. Something worse? What what is that? We know that Jewish people and associated with sin with suffering. In other words, in order to stop suffering, you had to deal with your sin. The rabbis said the sick arises not from sickness until his sin have been forgiven. Is that what Jesus is doing here? We're not really sure. Maybe Jesus is pointing to some way that, uh, of life early on that maybe led to his injury in the first place, and he's saying, you need to change your way of life or you'll walk right back into suffering. Or maybe Jesus is calling this man to faithful living. If you, if you don't come to faith now, then God may have to give you something else in your life to finally wake you up. Let this be the wake-up call. Don't make God give you another one. And so... Whatever it is, as we journey through the text here, we can, we can kind of build a character description of this man. And it's not really good. He's kind of weak, without conviction. He's unscrupulous. He never comes back to Jesus to thank him. He, he rats Jesus out to the Jewish leaders. And yet, with all of his, all of his junk... Jesus still heals him. Does that sound familiar? Why did Jesus save you? Why did Jesus save me? Most of us live under this illusion that we deserve to be saved. If you just think about that for just a second or two, you'll understand, you'll come to the conclusion rightfully that you are full of sin, that worse things are always possible that you are thankless, that you are disagreeable, 
that you're a snitch sometimes, and we see our inconsistencies, and we wonder, how does Jesus continue to stand up for us? I cannot pray except I sin. I cannot preach, but I sin. I cannot administer nor receive the holy sacrament, but I sin. My very repentance needs to be repented of. Man, how many of us live there? And the tears I shed need washing in the blood of Christ. Here's the most important thing today, the Savior working. Uh, The most important is what this sign points us to. It's not just about a lame man being healed at the pool. We don't even know if this man ever really followed Jesus or ever really acknowledged Him as the Savior or as the Son of God. And so the sign is about something else, and the key is when this sign happened. It was on the Sabbath. Here's verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the, what's the word? Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So the Jewish leaders come across this guy who has been healed, and they skip right over the miraculous healing, and they point to the mat that he's carrying on his back, and they, they say, that's unlawful, you're breaking the Sabbath. They don't even acknowledge this great miracle that has taken place. How rude of them, right? The fact that this happened on the Sabbath wasn't popular with the Pharisees. And they're so fed up that the text says they resolved to kill Jesus. That seems like kind of an overreaction until you realize that all the verbs in Verse 18 are in the imperfect tense. It just means that there's a repeated action in the past, and all that means is that this is not an isolated incident for Jesus. That verse 18 lets us know Jesus is doing this over and over and over again every Sabbath, every Sabbath, every Sabbath. He's going and he's healing somebody, he's healing somebody, healing somebody. And John pulls this event in to show us who Jesus is. Why did he scope out the hospital of the superstitious on a Sabbath? He could have done it any day. He was in town for a feast. He could have done a healing any day. Why the Sabbath? Because he wanted to show clearly who he was. And that's what this sign does. If we look at the text, the Jewish leaders want to kill Jesus because he's doing these things on the Sabbath, but more importantly, because he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They say, why are you doing these things on the Sabbath? Here's what Jesus says. Go back to verse 17. My father is working until now, and I am working. The first part of that phrase, they wouldn't have had any problem with. God made the world in six days, and he rested on the seventh. God is resting. But in a Jewish theological framework, they recognized that God didn't truly rest. He just rested from His creation. And the reason I can say that is because if God truly rested, then the world would fall apart every Sunday. 
And so they knew that he didn't, he's not really resting. There's all kinds of God-like things that have to happen on a Sunday. His work of judgment, his work of mercy, his work of compassion, his work of provision, his work of love, all of those things still go on. And so here's Jesus saying, I work the same way. God is working, even on the Sabbath. You recognize that. And so am I. And that's what would have broken the glass. Because Jesus is implying that His work and God's work are exactly the same. And with those words, Jesus is putting Himself on the same level as God Himself. Even in the text, just after this, Jesus will say, here's how God is working and here's how, how, here's how I'm working. Here's how we're working together. We're working to give life and we're working to judge people. And we are working in such a way that we are worthy of your worship. Oh my goodness. That was the most threatening, audacious thing that Jesus could have ever said. In a Jewish mind, no human could ever be worshipped, period. Nothing ever created with a beginning can be worshipped. John himself, when he sees uh, heaven in his revelation, he writes it down in the book of Revelation, he says that he sees an angel and he falls down to this angel and starts worshipping the angel and the angel says, get up, I'm a created being just like you, you don't worship created things, you only worship the creator. And here's Jesus saying, worship me. Wow. You want to know how to get killed in Jerusalem in Jesus' day? Say that. The charge was, your work, Jesus, is breaking the Sabbath. Your claim of being equal with God is worthy of death. And Jesus' response is this. My work doesn't break the Sabbath. My work creates the Sabbath. My work brings healing. My work brings rest. And what is the Sabbath? It's a break from work. It's a rest. It's a healing. And Jesus' claim here, this is big, is that real Sabbath rest is only found in the work that he has already done. That we will only rest in our souls when we rest in His work. And His work was to come and live a perfect life for you and offer that perfect life up as payment for your imperfect one. He fulfills all of the obligations of the law for you. All of the work that you try to do to live up the law uh, that you can never do, He does for you. That's what He did. That's His work. And so this whole sign points us to the fact that Jesus is here to do what we can't do for ourselves. To work and bring about healing and rest. I am God in the flesh, come to bring the healing rest of Sabbath to you. I'd like you to get your uh, communion elements out and we're going to spend a little time celebrating around the table today. And while you do that, I just want to tell you what is really lame. What's really lame is when we try to do the work that Jesus has already done for us. Why do we work so hard? We work 
so that hopefully someday we can rest. That, that's why we work, right? Here's Jesus saying, your work will never bring you the true rest that you're after. It's only my work. Paul in Romans will say, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteous. What, what work are we talking about? Are we saying anything that we do? No. We're saying all of those things that we try to do so that God will love us. That's the work that you'll never be able to do. And Jesus has done it for you. And the rest that you're after, it's found in his work. And you get that rest by uniting yourself with his work. And so that's what we come around the table to do, to remind ourselves that we are united to the one who has done all the work for us so that we have real rest and real healing. Let me pray. And then I want you to thank God for the work his, Jesus has done and the healing and the rest that he's brought to you as we celebrate together. Father, we thank you. We thank you that Jesus came in the flesh and did only the work that he could do, living a righteous life, offering that life as a sacrifice on a cross, giving his body, shedding his blood so that we could be made right with you. That's the work that he did. Help us to rest in that work. The healing waters are in front of us today. They're in front of us in a person. And maybe that person is asking us that same question. Do you want to be healed today? We say yes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.